We're going to look at Matthew 16. I'm going to read in the first verse down through verse 12. And I'm going to, after we read this passage, I'm going to define two things. And then, so I'm going to offer two definitions, and I'm going to offer two admonitions. So two definitions and two admonitions. And I'm not going to say what they are ahead of time before we read it, because I think that would really ratchet up the suspense, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that just keep us on the edge of our seats as we're reading? So you think through, there are two main things from this text, these 12 verses, that we want to define and make sure we have a definition for. And then after that, a couple of things that we want to give as an admonition. So let's look now, first verse, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew records this. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray just for a moment. Father, I admit that this moment can be all too familiar to us. We're gathered in a church building. It's a Sunday morning. And the guy has read the passage But I ask that in addition to that feeling of comfort or habit, that we would not have just a mere exercise of our brains or a passing of the time. I pray that a little bit more we'd be able to live into our confession concerning Scripture. That there's life here, there's activity here, there's power here. So whatever it is that you desire... Every God-breathed word for our rebuke or our comfort or our training in righteousness, whatever it is that you might desire, please give to us by your Spirit. I pray especially for those who have come today and are doubting or having difficult times, know that suffering can often make things blurry. I pray for comfort. I ask God that hardness of heart, busyness, a haggard lifestyle, that those things would not keep us from being alert and alive toward you. So help us together. Give us encouragement by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I said earlier that I was whining about the weather. I'm just taking a cue from Jesus who clearly teases the Pharisees and Sadducees about their inability to understand the weather. This passage at the beginning of Matthew 16 is a good sign to us, a reminder to us that the profession of meteorology has been much maligned for a long time. He says to them, Oh, so you said that it's going to be fair weather for the sky is red. And then in the morning, you said it's the sky is red and threatening. Therefore, it's going to be stormy. I think the point is they didn't understand. And they got it wrong even without the help of the big green screen. I said that I was going to define a few things in this passage. And then I was going to also help us be admonished about a few things in this passage. So maybe the first question is, well, what's new? What would need to be defined? What have we not talked about yet? And I'm going to set that against the contrast of things that we have seen already before in Matthew, because we're 16 chapters in now. So we've been at this a little while. If you've come to church here for the last number of months, you know that we've been marching through Matthew. We've been here a while, and there's some things that we've seen. We've heard this song before. Something like this. The Pharisees coming to Jesus. Jesus against the Pharisees, we've seen that. And we've dealt with and tried to describe, well, what are they like and what is their conflict? We've realized that the Pharisees were just one group of people who had to reckon with Jesus. That his life and his ministry and his healings were not quiet or easily dismissed. He needed to be reckoned with and the Pharisees were attempting to do so. We've seen that. We've seen those that come to Jesus seeking a sign. The end of Matthew chapter 12 a very specific moment of them coming to seek a sign. So that's been described before. We've seen Jesus' response before when he calls them an evil and adulterous generation for seeking a sign. And we've even seen him say, sorry, all you get is the sign of Jonah. Again, the end of Matthew 12 goes into detail on that and the meaning of it and the significance of Jonah going into the darkness, into the depths, into more or less death itself and then being delivered for the forgiveness of sins, the preaching of repentance. You've even seen before the disciples forgetting bread. They've had to have moments where they fed the 7,000 and then the 4,000 besides the women and children. You get the impression in verse 5 that, you know, Matthew's writing this, and this is in some ways his account. He's a disciple, so he's telling the story of Jesus, but he's experienced this, and I'm grateful. He includes the self-deprecating parts. He doesn't say, and they found themselves without bread. He blames it. He says the disciples reached the other side. They had forgotten to bring any bread. You get the impression that Jesus is a very patient teacher, not simply because that's his nature, but because he had to be. Like the disciples were all excited. They said, we want to do that demon casting stuff or the raising of people from dead. And they have, they're more like an intern. So he gives them intern jobs. And he says, how about this? Next time we go on mission, you guys just bring the lunchbox. And they're all, ah, I totally forgot the bread. They can't even do the simplest of things. So we've seen them forget the bread. And on the same theme, we've certainly seen the disciples confused. They barely get it any more than than anyone else gets it. The parables are taught, and they always have to go around the side door and come later to Jesus and say, like, okay, so tell us what it is you're talking about. Sometimes he tells them, and they still don't get it. So confusion we've seen before. So what have we not seen? What do I think might be significant? Why is Matthew framing it like this, and what could be helpful as we learn together? Well, here's one thing that we've barely seen and I think would be worth mentioning, and that is the Sadducees. 
A lot of these are Bible-y kind of words, and they seem like they're just easy to gloss over, right? So you start Matthew 16, and then the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you might, that's just like blocked as a gloss for you. But it's significant that he includes Sadducees, and I want to define and say why I think that's significant. And then secondarily, another thing that we've not seen is the disciples get understanding. They learn something. That's kind of new. Matthew says, no, 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 we got it finally. So we want to discuss and think about that, but... Maybe one final definition is the idea of leaven. Because my guess is, is that for some of us, you may get to the idea of the word leaven. You say to yourself, I'm a grown person reading the Bible. I think I should know this word, but no one uses it ever. So I wanted to find what it is by leaven, and why would Jesus say, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? So those definitions. Of the three things that are new, the Sadducees, the disciples actually getting a clue, and then the leaven, I'm going to define two of them. Sadducees and leaven. Two admonitions when we get there will be this. One, to beware sign-seeking. To beware of sign-seeking. And then second, we're going to be beware of soul-shaping. We want to be aware but beware, that's the word that Jesus used, of soul shaping. So let's dive in with some definitions. Why does Matthew say, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and what should that tell us? Well, the first thing to note is that in all of this account, the months and months that we've studied Matthew, the Sadducees have been more or less absent. The Pharisees and scribes have been all over the place. The Sadducees have not. They showed up one previous time. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is doing his baptizing, and it says the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and then John the Baptist turned and pointed them out, and he called them a brood of vipers. He threw them all into one big group and said, you're all terrible. Now, one thing to note about this, the Sadducees mirrored or were like the Pharisees in some ways. They were a religious party in Jewish tradition. They were zealous for God. They had spiritual authority. They were teachers. The Sadducees would have sought people to follow them. They had a following. They had an impact. But there were many, many things that were different. In a lot of ways, they were rivals. The Sadducees were rivals to the Pharisees. Not quite like rival gangs, like outsiders or something, but more like political parties or religious teachers within a movement. The Sadducees were very different to the Pharisees. And in order to get at their differences, I'm going to create some caricatures. Now, I know that broad stereotypes and generalities can be dangerous, but they're also very helpful and fun. So I'm going to paint in broad generalities and some stereotypes, and I hope that no one takes too much offense. If on the one side we describe Pharisees, a person or the people most likely to follow Pharisees or to be a Pharisee, were those who were extremely fastidious. They were people who loved lists. They wanted to be right. They needed to know the rules. They wanted to not only be right and to know the rules, but to make sure that everyone else was following the rules. They were zealous for God and for His holiness. They loved Leviticus and Sinai and Moses and Deuteronomy. They were the gatekeepers of right living and right thinking. A person who maybe would have been more of a Pharisee kind of person would have been someone who focused on what you could call the normative perspective in life. The idea of what, what things should be. They're big on ought. Maybe think 
engineers or I don't know, uh, constitutional lawyers or I don't, I don't know the kind of people who are like the gatekeeper. Think, like, think the regulator people who come to measure your fence in your backyard for the permit for the county. These kind of people whose job is to be exacting. That's the Pharisees. If you want to put it in religious terms, they would have been fundamentalists. A little stuffy. More stuffy than they needed to be. Like a little bit too, a little ragey, right? In political terms, they would have been the hyper-conservatives. They would have been the people holding on, grasping, keeping. Some of you are getting nervous. We're talking about political terms. So who were the Sadducees? Sadducees favored not, it's not that they discounted, they, they loved the law, they served God, they wanted to follow him with zeal, but they often deferred to and tried to highlight and favored the priestly ministry of Israel's leaders. They emphasized the idea that people should be included and understood. They emphasized not the normative what ought, but they wanted to understand the situation and the context of people. They had less of an edge. They didn't outright deny the law, though the Pharisees would have said they did, but they wanted to deal with the spirit of the law. They were those who showed their zeal by emotional compassion. They would have had in corporate speak today a little bit more EQ. The main thing, according to the Bible, that marked them was a downplaying of the harsher aspects of religious teaching, including the miracles, the things that were hard to understand, that dealt with power and bigness. In fact, before Jesus ever resurrected from the dead, they were the party that said, resurrection is impossible. Come on, let's be reasonable. Let's talk together here. The Sadducees would have perhaps been more people-oriented. They would have been better in HR, I think is the right term. Although, I guess it depends. The ideal HR person knows the rules and has the rule book, but they're decent at talking with humans. I think that's the Sadducees tried to be. They cared about the rule book, but they had a much more of a significant understanding of people. And the main thing is that they deny the supernatural. Now, you'd say to yourself, how could they be following God but deny the supernatural? The reality is that this kind of spirituality is alive and well today. Much of, I consider to be the decline, much of the decline of mainline Protestantism in the West over the last hundred years has been, I believe, due to them attempting to walk a fine line between godliness, caring about spiritual things. Scripture says that there's a form of godliness that denies the power. Mainline Protestantism in our Western world over the last hundred years has tried to maintain a spiritual center while slowly deconstructing and walking away from the supernatural and the miraculous. So you can find many, many churches who will talk about Jesus, who will read from Scripture, but will either completely ignore and many times outright deny miraculous things. They will say, for instance, that the resurrection of Jesus was not literal. It was likely made up by his disciples afterward. And after all, it doesn't even really matter because the true lesson here is that the power of an unquenchable, servant-hearted, humble spirit goes on in his followers. This is what churchy people will say still today. 
I remember going to a concert one time and bringing some youth that I was leading in my early 20s and going to this concert. The music was great. The artists were awesome. There was some comedy. It was fun. And then right before a final hymn to be sung, a guy from a mainline church in our town stood up and he said, I just want everyone to be careful. We're going to sing this song. It has a lot to do with the death of Jesus and it's going to have all this stuff about atonement as though, you know, God and wrath and stuff. And he's like, but we changed some lyrics because the point of Jesus' death was not atoning for big wrath or cosmic stuff. It's really just obvious that sometimes people are good-hearted, but the world will not like them. And they, they die as suffering, and we should learn from that. In other words, he was trying to still maintain Christianity, but I felt like deny all of its power. Anything that would have seemed odd. And I believe that this feeling has been alive and well in people for thousands of years. The Sadducees had that instinct form, but no power. Now, I just define two very different kinds of people. Perhaps the people people, the counseling people, the HR people, the more artsy people, the emotionally intelligent people, and the other side maybe less so. It will not surprise you then to realize that these two groups, one that would have tended to be more stickler, more fundamentalist, more conservative, the other that probably would have got a bad rap for being a little bit more progressive, a little bit more liberal, they were in many ways enemies. They were vying for the ear of Israel. They almost never cooperated. They could not see eye to eye. They would throw one another under the bus. They would judge the followers of the other. They did not function well together. It's one of the reasons that the Sadducees have not been around now for 13 chapters in Matthew. So I want you to imagine, I'm going to put this in the starkest term possible. I want you to imagine someone telling a story about an issue in American culture and life that starts out like this. Now, the Republicans and the Democrats came together to cooperate and identify a problem. What would you be tipped off to think? Whoa, what are we at war or something? This must be so massive to transcend the bounds of very real, but sometimes even petty, competition between teams. And what we're to see now is Matthew tells this unfolding story of Jesus in the world. His healing, his teaching, his ministry, and his following has gotten traction to the point that he can no longer be ignored. And he must be reckoned with. I think the phrase is that war makes strange bedfellows. Have you heard this before? The idea is that sometimes a threat becomes so evident and obvious that you will set aside previous prejudice in order to attack the thing together. That's what Matthew is indicating. He's saying, look, this Jesus thing is getting big enough. It's a deal. And the Pharisees, yeah, and the Sadducees came to him together. And then there's going to be one more shock. What is the thing that they're seeking? Miracles, which is one of the main disagreements between the two. So we're getting tipped off here in a definition of the Sadducees that Jesus is gaining the attention. He will not be ignored. In fact, I think it's one of the greatest things to know concerning Jesus. He cannot be and he will not be ignored. That's one of the lessons we're learning in hearing the Sadducees. All right, so that's definition number one. You see the scene now? Do you understand how it's being set up? Second, and I'll just be short, or try to be, 
leaven. You may not be a baker. And even if you are a baker, you probably use the word like yeast, not leaven. Leaven is sort of an old school word. It's a category that's bigger than just yeast, but it's in the same camp. So let me explain as best I can. I'm not a baker, but I looked some stuff up. And my mom was a baker. Where I grew up, the Midwest is, is generally, I think, in a lot of ways, um, I know it's not the proper definition of, there's, an, there's a thing called a food desert in areas of poverty in cities where it's difficult to find food. Grocery stores do not exist. So we did not have that. There was food aplenty. What I might call it is like fun food desert. We had a, a long line of people who were picky eaters. And then just generally speaking, food is utilitarian where I grew up. It's just downplayed and devalued. But there was one thing that my mom did that was always a delight and always made me interested. She baked. She would bake cookies. She would often bake these wonderful, fresh out of the oven buns that just would melt butter all over and they were fluffy but substantive and they would smell so good. And what would happen is there were particular days when you would walk through the kitchen and you'd look over and you would see the dough sitting on the counter. And I knew what was coming. I wanted to fast forward on the, the VCR. Uh, like, like the VCR, I wanted to fast forward, hit that button twice even. And I, I'd want to I'd make the thing go faster, but we couldn't make it go faster because what my mom was doing, in order to get the fluffiness, the bigness, to get them to grow, she'd put yeast in the dough. And then two things about yeast that are real. One, it meanders its way through whatever it infects so that eventually all is affected, and second, it causes the thing to grow. Now, this understanding of leaven has been with people who make bread down through the generations. And Israel would have understood leaven in this particular way, or they should have understood that Jesus, when he brings up the leaven of the Pharisees, that he's speaking purposefully. This is not the first time that God has used leaven to teach a spiritual lesson. In Exodus chapter 12 and 13, when the last of the plagues are brought upon Egypt so that they can leave finally their enslavement, they are taught to celebrate what is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, what's the difference with unleavened bread and leavened bread? Well, it teaches them a lesson. They were to live. In fact, it says to them, when you eat the unleavened bread, your kids are going to ask you, why are we eating this stale bread? You should have put leaven in there so that it would rise and be fluffy like my mom's. But you should tell them that we, we do unleavened bread to remember that we needed to be ready to flee at any moment. He says, you're going to eat these meals with your sandals on. This is not your home. He's telling people, Egypt is not your home and salvation is going to come to you in a moment and you need to be ready to go. So as a reminder of what it was like to be a sojourner, an exile in a place to be enslaved in a place that is not your home, you need to eat this unleavened bread as a reminder that we didn't have time. This wasn't cozy. This wasn't the place that we could let it meander through the, through the bread and through the dough and let it grow. Instead, you eat the cracker, the thinness, the quick thing. It's one of the reasons why in the Eucharist today, the Lord's Supper, the communion table, however you'd say it, that it's often crackers that are used because it is symbolic of the Passover Feast, this feast of unleavened bread leading into Passover. So I think Jesus, when he says, beware the leaven, 
would have hoped the disciples would have been thinking more spiritually or metaphorically than they were. Instead, perhaps because they were so nervous about dropping their one intern duty, which is to bring the bread, they thought that the Pharisees and Sadducees had brought poisoned bread, I guess, or something. Hey, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And then they say, like, we didn't even bring any bread. I don't know what else it could have meant, but Jesus tells them, and this is where they gain some understanding, what he means is that the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees can infect and then meander and then grow. So they ought to be careful about teaching, what they listen to and submit to. So those are the definitions. Sadducees and leaven. Now, what are the admonishments? What should we be aware of? Well, I imagine we should be aware of the same things that they were to be thinking about in this particular passage. The first is the tendency to seek signs, to treat God as though he were a cosmic vending machine, to put oneself, sign-seeking, according to the Bible, is the hallmark of those who get puffed up enough spiritually to believe that they are in a bargaining position with God. To believe that what is owed them is some sort of calculation off to the side that they can then put God in the dock for. They can put Him to trial about whether or not God has given them what they deserve or want. There is a standard that they are both haggling over. Sign-seeking is a hallmark of those who believe that if they offer allegiance to God, it will be a favor to Him. And that the person who needs to be proven is not themselves, but God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are essentially trying to bargain with Jesus to say something like this. Look, you're getting a following. We know you have power. We know this is going. In fact, to show you how magnanimous we are, we are sworn enemies, but we're coming together to you to broker a deal. We're going to let you, we're going to let you do a sign, work a little miracle, get your trick going. The Pharisees, they're the ones who believe in miracles, and we can verify it for you. We're the regulatory commission, and we'll verify the thing for you and stamp it. The Sadducees will even observe the sign and then tell all their followers, it turns out we were wrong. God is actually present in the earth and doing miraculous things. And then we'll all be happy. They came with negotiation and Jesus offered them none. The potential for those who would come to Christ, for those who would be spiritual, is to, while at the same time with our mouths voicing allegiance to Him, we withhold and we press standards. And it's very tempting, though you would not say it out loud very often. Very rarely would you say something like this. You don't, you don't pray like this very often. Jesus, here's the thing. I love you. I believe in you. But I would believe in you a lot more if my life was just better. So please, X, Y, Z. Very rarely do you say that out loud. Very rarely do you tell your friends, yeah, you know, I think I'd be a lot more spiritual, but the thing is, is that I prayed a couple times a few, la- a few times last year. The things didn't happen as soon as I would have wanted them to, so I've just been a little cold on the thing since. No one says that out loud, but I believe that functionally the best of us often operate like this. We have subtle fears 
nuanced difficulty that what God has commanded, we're just not quite sure. So we withhold. We withhold generosity. We withhold service. We withhold trust. We withhold forgiveness. We withhold grace. We withhold mercy. We withhold surrender. Because after all, if God's not going to do what we want, why should we do what He wants? This is particularly tempting in times of suffering. Because the reality of the world is that it is a very difficult place. And it is a good thing to want things. You've been designed with desires. You want leavened bread. You want the, the thing that grows and is tasty and is fluffy. These are good things to want them. It just turns out that this is not our home and this is not our place and we don't get to dictate to God what He does and when He does it. So sign-seeking is the first evidence that we are perhaps puffed up, a little more proud than we thought, a little bit more pitiful than we thought. I think especially in times of suffering, it's a good time. It's an opportunity to check your hearts, to say, are there things in here that I'm angry with God? I won't tell Him, but I'm withholding because I perceive He's withheld from me. I think this is the whole lesson of the book of Job. And the thing that Job had to see is that when he does not understand his circumstances and even in the midst of suffering, to believe that God persists to be good and that the best path is to surrender oneself to him fully. Job chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Nearing the conclusion, the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. I think the spirit here of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is this kind of thing. A fault finder, an arguer with God. Let's be reasonable here, Jesus. If you would just work a miracle here now. And the lesson of Job is essentially, no, that's not the way this works. To surrender oneself to the God of the universe is to give up having to know every reason for everything. And even the good things in our life, we offer them with open hands. We say what we have received we did not deserve and what has not yet been received will be given to us eternally in Christ. So don't subtly, in a nuanced way, bargain with God. And the reason that I think it's the most difficult in the moments of suffering and the things that you lack is because you very rarely bargain with God about the things that you have. Although I guess I can imagine it. I can imagine saying something like, I would give up if I have this and I'll stop if. This is not the way of health. Your soul will seek it, but beware of seeking signs. God is not to be trifled with. Jesus did not come in power so that he could put on parlor tricks for us. So beware, Jesus says, of seeking signs. He calls it evil and adulterous to do so. Finally, last admonition. What does Jesus tell the disciples leaving this exchange of sign seeking? Well, the true meaning of the leaven 
and the teaching is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Luke chapter 12 actually tells us that their teaching is hypocrisy. Their leaven is hypocrisy. So beware of this. Now, I think this is a fascinating beware because the disciples were following Jesus. And he's not insecure. Jesus is not worried somehow that they're going to go follow them. He knows the outcome of their discipleship. But he still tells them, beware. I think this indicates that oftentimes we are unaware of the things that shape our souls. Maybe I'll just say it as directly as I can with this. You are not a static being. What you desire and what you love, what you want, the things you think, your opinions, your convictions, they are being formed right now. They're being formed. Your soul is always being shaped. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees come up and they're teaching and Jesus says to his disciples, I just want you to be aware, I know you're following me, but be careful because the information, the thing you give your attention to, it has a potential like leaven to meander and to grow. You are a being shaped person, not a shapen person. Not, there's no past tense about this. Sometimes it's evident, but many times it is not. Here's some questions that I think we could get at. What messages will get your attention in the next seven days? What voice will speak most loudly, most influentially, most persuasively? The question is not, will you listen to voices, but which ones? Romans chapter 1 says that the fallen conscience, the inner voice, will be something that you listen to. And in Romans 1, he says that the inner voice, the issue with the inner voice is that it goes back and forth between excusing and accusing. So what I would say to you is in the next seven days, you will tell a story to yourself. You will tell a story about who you are and what your circumstances are and what's necessary and whether or not it's good or it's bad. And I think that in your own nature, apart from the Spirit of God, you may be tempted one way or the other to excuse or to accuse. People who are tempted to excuse themselves see themselves constantly as the main character of life. I've heard teenagers these days describe sort of main character and then everyone else is considered sort of like an, an NPC. That's what I talked to the kids one time and they were describing, well, how, what do your friends say about so-and-so? Or how did that conversation go? And they'll just be like, eh, a little NPC. And if you don't understand what that means, just like ask a younger person. They'll tell you. In other words, the whole world is surrounds them. They're just the characters in the video game that help you on your journey. So the kind of people who listen to your voice this week, you might be tempted to excuse yourself as you're the main character and everything that happens around you can be excused away. It's not your fault. Everyone is there for you. It was what they did to you. In other words, life just happened to you and you excuse yourself far too often. That can be one voice you listen to this week. No responsibility, no accountability, no honest ability to have any kind of self-awareness. On the flip side, there are some of you that struggle with accusation. The inner voice this week will tell you that you are not worth it, that you were never the main character. 
that you're at best a side quest that is left unfulfilled in every single person's game. That you were more wrong than you were. That you can't possibly be redeemed. That everyone is talking about you negatively. You see, sometimes an inner voice can accuse you. So this week, you will have an inner voice. What will it say? Will you allow the Holy Spirit to shape the inner voice, this narrative of your life that tells you, here's who I am, here's what's happening to me, here's how I should respond. This is whether or not it's right or good or bad. It's not whether you'll be shaped this week, it's by which voice. Maybe another question. Are we paying attention to who teaches us? And a lot of teaching is explicit. You went to class this week. Professor Poindexter taught me geometry. I was being taught. But many of us know, of course, that we're being taught all the time. There are outside voices that tell us who we are and who we should be and what we should want, what we should desire. And our desires are being shaped by these outside voices all the time. The image that's being presented Whether we like to admit it or not, we complain about advertising. Can you believe that YouTube messed with the ad blocker on the YouTube thing? I mean, I can't even believe it. All of us are constantly complaining about the ads that are in the world. But I would just say this. The reason there's so many ads in the world is because they work. I can't believe that political spending is what it is. People just spend all this money. It's so crazy. They just put their name out there. They do it because it works. You're being shaped. Here's a good example. This week, Apple released a new product. Apple Vision Pro. Now, up until this week when it was released, and still a little bit right now, I would have said to you, this looks like one of the dumbest technological products I've ever seen in my whole life. It's essentially a construction helmet that they invite you to wear all the time. Like a welding goggles is what they invite you to wear in your real life, and you're supposed to be cool with this. And I thought to myself, you know what's going to happen to this? It's going to be exactly like Google Glass. Remember when Google Glass was everything? If you haven't looked these things up, it's okay. I'm a technology, I like technology stuff. So I looked into it. And up until this week, I thought, this is so dumb. I, no one will, this is the ugliest thing. No one will use this. And then I watched a few reviews, just a few, three or four reviews, you know, sometime. And I got to the end of it, and I thought to myself, oh, this thing is so dumb. I wonder when the price will go down. You know? Man. I'm sure there'll be a refurb, like on version 2 or something. Now, I, I wouldn't want the thing. But I mean, like, if I tried it, I suppose it wouldn't be that bad. You see, what happens is I'm being shaped. My opinions are not firm. And many times, this is what's interesting about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, many times we're being shaped by our enemies. We're listening when we say we're not listening. We're being taught to disdain, to downplay, to cancel, to demure. When I was younger, my older brother was very different than me. And I would have told anyone that I was not like him. He cared about style and fashion. He was into music, like in rock stuff, grunge. He loved art. He could draw amazingly. He would read books for fun. Now, they were odd books, Stephen King books, but he was reading constantly. He liked movies and had opinions about them and stuff, and I was always just like, yeah, but why won't you play baseball with us in the yard? 
And have you seen the new cards that Donruss just put out? They're amazing. And can we go play basketball? And what about being outside, huh? Huh? And I would probably would have teased him about that. And then I found something. This could be a good litmus test for you this week. Where and when do you find that you've had opinions formed about things that you otherwise would say, I don't, I don't pay attention to that? I had a funny thing happen to me. One time I was hanging out with new people, and they brought up an opinion about music, some band. I don't even remember what it was. Let's just make up some sort of rock band from back then, like Pearl Jam or something. They're not made up, but you know what I mean. And I found myself not only immediately in my heart having an opinion, but then voicing it. Well, actually, the drummer didn't know he's doing it until the third album or whatever. And I said this thing, and I found myself transported into a world that I didn't know was existed. Because I'm not, the, I'm not the music guy. I don't like any of this kind of stuff. But I found that subtly over the course of years, my older brother had shaped so many of my opinions all the while I was protesting that he wasn't influencing me. You are shaped by outside voices. A couple of painful questions for this week. How much attention will your phone get? No, Lance, seriously. I'm, I'm, this is like for me. This is when I turn around. How much attention will your phone get? And then what is on there? What is being said? This can be a thing where one generation can be tempted to say the other is out of whack. I know right now, younger folks are going to be saying, I know what you mean. These outside voices, my parents just need to turn off the news. And you know what the older people are saying? They're saying, I can't believe kids these days, these outside voices listening to that hip hop music and following the TikToks on social and all this stuff. Like everyone accuses other people of being shaped and not knowing it. The reality is, is that we all are being shaped and oftentimes, why did Jesus have to tell them, beware? Because sometimes they're woefully unaware. You are not a static being. You are being shaped this very moment. The reason the church, the reason your community group leaders, the reason pastors and friends ask you questions sometimes about like, hey, did you read anything lately? Have you read your Bible? How's your prayer this week? is not because we want you to check off a list. We're not mad. We're not trying to create model citizens so we can brag about you. Of course, those things happen. But the point would be essentially this. We just know you're being shaped. And we want you to be aware of what you're being shaped by. A lot of times, if I get into a situation where someone wants to talk to me about something, and they bring me a fire hose about some topic that I've barely thought about, my first question, my first thought is, which YouTube channels are you watching? Who's discipling you? And they'd be like, I'm not being discipled. What are you talking about? This is just facts. I'm like, no, no, no. You've been shaped now for six months in the underground layer of whatever it is you're excited about. But I need to know, like, well, how, tell me about this. We're being shaped. And oftentimes we don't take stock. So what's the invitation here? The invitation of Jesus is to say, when you don't have answers to the questions, when you're not sure what does it mean for me to be Lord, look to me. I am the sign. Jesus is the sign. God himself came in human flesh. He dwelt among us and lived righteously, a life that we could not live because we sin. He died on the cross, a sign of a cross being lifted up, and all who look to him will be forgiven because he atones for sinners. Jesus went into the grave, came out of it, so that not only he, but we might have hope of the resurrection from the dead. This is the greatest sign the world has ever seen. 
And because it is true and because we have Christ, we need not negotiate with God about the minor things. We can confess the minor things. We should bring our suffering to him and say, I'm languishing here. He loves to meet you in your brokenness, but you ought not use your brokenness to bargain with him. And I believe that what the hope of the Christian would be is to realize that though you are not fully shaped yet, you will be. And you will one day be transformed into a glorious image 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we with all, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. The hope of the Spirit is that our inner voices are being transformed, and our outer world is being transformed, and our understanding and our ability to forgive is being transformed. It says at the end of verse 18, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So it's not all negative. Soul shaping happens when you're unaware. And thank God it also happens outside of our power according to the spirit of freedom at work within us. One degree, not lots of degrees, one degree at a time. Jesus who died for you, who rose for you, who indwells you now by his spirit, will not forsake you. He who began a good work in you will continue it. You will be shaped. And one day, you will bring glory to God in a way that fits your design, the purpose for your whole existence. So this week, and all the weeks to come, consider that your soul is being shaped and ask the Spirit of God to reveal more of your ultimate, your, what's the, the phrase, your final form in Christ. Let's pray.